Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time at prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network. So today, what am I going to talk about? I have a habit of uh, what I call maybe associative thinking. Drives my students crazy, but my ideas totally jump around and I do it deliberately. I think it's important that that's the way advances in thought are done, you know, through metaphor and analogy. Uh, give you an example. I was at a, I wasn't even planning to talk about this, so that's an example. I was at a, an important conference at Stanford. I was on a bus to uh, some event during the conference with a uh, prominent uh, quantum physicist and started talking and I don't know I'm an architect what do I know about physics so I sort of have an amateur interest I'll mention uh, today I want to talk about books I've been listening to who can read anymore uh, but I try to follow uh, developments in quantum theory for the layperson you know without formulas and there's, um, <clears throat> uh, what's his name, uh, Feynman liked to say, everything you need to know about quantum theory is in the double slit experiment. So that's when you take uh, two narrow slits, maybe made with a razor blade in aluminum foil, and shine light at it, and the light's going to go through either or both slit and interfere with itself, creating wave patterns. And it has to do with, is light a particle or a wave? And if you send one photon at a time through the slit, still photons will interfere with each other, even though they're separated by time. So that's a big mystery, as Feynman implied, if you understand. If you can figure out why that is, you maybe solve big problems in quantum theory. So we were chatting about this, and I said, well, maybe time is very different than we think. In other words, maybe even though they're 20 seconds apart, these photons are don't see it that way. They're going through at the same time. That's why they can interfere with each other. So he thought for a long time, and uh, <laughs> he never thought of that. So I want to get caught up on what I've been reading or listening to. I'm actually doing a lot of reading, which I, I uh, you know, I get to bed at night. I could read a book or I could watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory and uh, <laughs> I end up watching a rerun of Big Bang Theory. But right now I'm doing an interesting book. I'm writing a book on the Philadelphia School, the architecture, landscape architecture and city planning school at the University of Pennsylvania from 1950 to 1965. And I was there from 59 to 66. It was a very seminal event. I mean, architects you might have heard of, Louis Kahn and Robert Venturi were there. There's a lot more going on, so I'm writing a book about that. So i got to read a bunch of other books. Uh, <clears throat> a lot of it comes from my memories, but 
it's scholarly. I have a scholarly uh, publisher, but I mostly listen to books. So if I uh, run into an interesting book, the first thing I do is go to Audible and find out if there's an audio version, which I uh, then download and listen to. So what have I been listening to? I just finished Post-Corona from Crisis to Opportunity by Scott Galloway. Now, <clears throat> the point here is not so much this book, but I've got to confess that being late to discovering Scott Galloway, I've been listening to him for about six months, and he is just incredible. He's a professor of marketing and advertising and the, at NYU in the um, I think Stern School of Business. So Scott Galloway is a professor at NYU Stern School of Business, and he lectures, has a podcast, loves to hear himself talk, and he is so direct. <laughs> uh, uh, just an absolute joy to listen to. Well, this particular book is pertinent to the moment, finished in November, so it's only a couple months as of this uh, our show today, <clears throat> only a couple months old, and he had previously written a book called uh, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, uh, which <laughs> you might notice are taking over the world. Why is that? What, what is it about them? Well, since the virus, all four of these have hugely expanded in their reach and in their capitalization value. Why? The point he makes is that the world was moving in that direction. You know, we're moving in the direction of buying things online instead of going to the store and buying them from Amazon. And what the virus has done is accelerate that 10 years. In other words, uh, six months, eight months into the virus, uh, everybody's staying at home and buying online we are in our proportion of store shopping and online shopping where if there had been no virus, we would have been in 10 years. We're there now. So that's, what, that's what's happening, that these companies that were happening anyway uh, have been accelerated. Well, um, one of the things that he, he's... Uh, well, and there are a lot of implications to that. It's not as simple as, okay... Uh, you know, you go to Amazon or some other online Shopify or something. Uh, but all of a sudden, uh, brands become less important. So I notice when I buy LED light bulbs, um, I'm not looking at the brand. I don't, what, who makes LED light bulbs? General Electric doesn't make light bulbs anymore. Who do, You just look for the cheapest price and the most four-star reviews. Is it four or five? Whatever. Um, and you go down and look at the reviews and a couple people say, you know, I screwed it in the light bulb and it lasted two minutes and I couldn't return it. Or you say, you, you see, hey, this bulb is really great. Uh, and you buy that bulb and I don't even know what brands they are. So a whole world that had used television advertising for um, half a century to build up brand recognition. That world is over, and a different world is emerging. Well, 
that's his expertise. He does a course in branding and what's happening with it, etc. But he also talks about education, sort of my field. I'm a professor at an art and design school and uh, an architecture. And um, I've been, <laughs> uh, one of my friends we've had on this show, Andy, years ago in the 1980s, uh, I was uh, chatting with him and he said, that he was the second person in the world to teach a course online. And he was with a private company. He was a, he's a philosophy professor at major universities over the decades. But he, I think he's now in Canada. And, but he got involved with this company and was doing a course for executives online, which is common today, but not in 18, 1985. So apparently he was the second person to do that. Inspired by that, uh, I, we had a VAX computer at Pratt, which was a, a central computer with lots of terminals, mostly all in one room. But you could also get into it remotely. I had just gotten a Macintosh computer and I had a modem. So I could get into the campus VAX and use the mail system. Well, today you can email anybody from anywhere to anybody from any email system. I use uh, Mac.com. Most people use Gmail.com. But whatever you use, <laughs> I still have my AOL account. Whatever you use, uh, it can reach anybody else. That didn't used to be true. And so uh, we could reach anybody else on that VAX uh, through mail, but that was it. But that's all I needed, and what we did was we set up uh, a, uh, a mail group for the whole class uh, with the help of the VAX administrator, the computer administrator. And if I said uh, to whole class, what do you think of this and that? And then anybody would hit reply and say, well, I think, da-da-da, um, it would go to the whole class. So that in time, we built up a class discussion. I could print it out and see everybody's contribution and all that. So I was doing that in 1985. And then about 10 years ago, I started recording my uh, lectures, mostly my lectures on architecture, but a lot of other stuff, and putting them on YouTube. And that was an effort. Um, I used software called Camtasia. And it's exactly what I need. It records my voice and what's ever on my screen, which will be my PowerPoint. And then I can save and upload it to YouTube. And it's interesting. I guess I've built uh, YouTube. Trust me. As soon as it's uploaded, it's there. They don't have to wait for somebody to review it. And the... Um, uh, I guess, you know, their algorithms check who's troublemaker and who's not. But anyway, so for more than 10 years, and they've been viewed over a quarter million times all over the world. So I was doing this. Pratt was not too happy about it. I'd get flack occasionally. All of a sudden, the whole world is doing this. <laughs> 
we're all teaching online with Zoom. And uh, boy, that was a good company to have stock in. But anyway, Scott Galloway is big on talking about the future of education. And one of my other favorite figures, um, Clayton Christensen, who just died a couple of years ago, quite tragically, he was young, he uh, had gotten leukemia. But uh, he invented the term disruptive innovation. And it has a very specific meaning. I've talked about him, and I think we played some of his clips. So if you go through our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com, you'll find a show I did on him. And I grabbed some clips from his YouTube. But you can just put Clayton Christensen in YouTube and see what he was doing. And disruptive innovation doesn't mean any new technology. So, for example, uh, he has a very specific meaning. Yes, there are disruptive technologies, but he means something specific. And so we might think of Uber, which is disrupting the yellow taxi industry, but that's not an example. Um, what he means is something that comes in at the low end, is cheap, can't do very much, uh, is ignored by high-power users because it can't do anything they need, but slowly or actually uh, moves up in capability more quickly than the established technology and suddenly surpasses it. When it surpasses it, it's cheap, simple, readily available, and can do more than the expense of older technology, and the expense of older technology disappears. Well, we've seen that a dozen dozen times or so in computers with the mini computer disrupting the uh, mainframe, the workstation disrupting the mini computer, and the uh, desktop PC disrupting and laptop PC disrupting the workstation, and then the iPad and uh, the tablet and smartphone disrupting the laptop. So <clears throat> some of us use laptops because they do things we need, but if all you're doing is surfing the web and checking your email and writing simple emails, you don't even need a laptop. Your tablet or a phone will do. And uh, until the pandemic, uh, for the past four or five years, the sales of laptops have been decreasing. Now they've taken off because everybody has to set up a home office. And we just now, just in the past couple of weeks, saw another absolutely classic Clayton Christensen example. Um, Intel makes high power chips. And in fact, uh, Andy Grove, of uh, CEO of Intel at the time, had invite, invited Clayton Christensen to talk to the board. And they were backed up on something. He was supposed to get 20 minutes. And uh, they said, okay, we're ready for you. Unfortunately, we only have 10 minutes. He said, forget it. What I have to tell you is important. You need to hear it. It's going to take a half an hour. Uh, give me a half an hour or forget it. They said, okay, you got a half an hour. Made his presentation. Andy Grove said, okay, we've just turned around the whole company. 
Uh, and the point he made is they were making more and more powerful chips that people didn't need. Yes, if you're editing movies, you need a super high power Intel x86 chip. But 99% of us, 99% of the time, are surfing the web, sending emails, and writing, uh, writing with a word processor. I could do that on my 1985 Mac. I don't need uh, the latest super high power 16 core chip to do that. Um, but what people do care about is that they're dragging this battery charger power box around everywhere because the battery in a laptop won't last more than five or six hours. And Andy Grove says, you're right, we should be making um, cheaper, less powerful, but more power-efficient chips. Well, they didn't do that. They, they've created the Celeron chip. I don't know what happened to it. In the meantime, Apple launched <coughs> the, the current generation of smartphones, the iPhone. And Apple went to Intel and said, um, could you make the chips for our smartphone? And Intel said, we don't see a business there. They're cheap, they're underpowered, um, uh, it's not our expertise. Well, they probably have done in the company as a result of this because Apple started using RISC chips, ARM chips, and <clears throat> the, uh, eventually they licensed the technology, made their own chips, and they're very low power because you use them in a phone that has a tiny battery. So whereas an Intel ch chip now, high end, might use 25 watts, that's like a bulb in a refrigerator. Don't touch it. It's hot. Um, the chip in your phone is using 2.5 watts. And uh, the phone got more and more powerful. And suddenly, as of a couple of weeks ago, the chip that Apple was making for its phones became more powerful than the most powerful Intel monster chips that use 25 watts. And Apple is now uh, rolling out a new generation of its laptops with its own chip in it and dropping Intel. So that's an example of Clayton Christensen's disruption. So digression, digression, digression. That's how I think, <laughs> by digressions. Uh, so Scott Galloway is uh, one of the two of the fields he addresses most seriously are fashion and education. And he's a professor at NYU. And he likes to rattle off what the students are paying to be in his course, which is obscene, uh, the amount of money they pay. Um, and we know that education's out of control, which means it's ripe for disruption. So you can pay $50,000. Uh, at NYU and take four courses, one of them, let's say you take five courses, you're paying $10,000 for uh, Scott Galloway's course, or you can get it for free on YouTube. <laughs> uh, let's see, $10,000 or free. Now, 
NYU gives you a, a degree certification. Uh, you, you graduated NYU Stern Business School, you will get a good job. But what happens when some smart entrepreneur starts giving out certificates for taking online courses? And of course, it's happening, called MOOCs. And uh, for, you know, one-tenth the cost of the NYU or the Ivy League course. <clears throat> so you might have, uh, if you're aware of what I'm talking about, you know that MOOCs sort of uh, aren't a threat anymore. And I've taught a couple MOOCs. If you go to buildacademy.com, you'll find a, a course, on, a wonderful course on Franklin Wright I did with the founder of Build Academy. It's got about 40 parts. Each one's about eight minutes. And the idea of uh, a MOOC is, is one clear idea that's presented in eight minutes with review material. You master that, and then you go on to the next one, as opposed to hour-long bloviating lectures like I give, where I teach. <laughs> they wander all over the place. But anyway. Um, so I have a colleague who uh, is a very high up academic administrator. We were just talking on the phone the other day about what do colleges have to do to respond to where we are. Right now, colleges are saying, um, I hope we get the vaccine soon and we can get back to business as usual before we go out of business. That's what they're saying. But Amazon said, um, well, Scott Galloway quotes Bezos, uh, CEO, founder, CEO of Amazon, as uh, the, the last shareholders meeting. He said, okay, sit down, by which he means you're not going to like what I have to say. They had just made $4 billion in profits, and the investors were waiting to get it distributed. Amazon's notorious for not being very profitable. They keep their prices super low. You might say that's to drive the competition out of business, but the other way to put it is um, you take any threatening company. IBM was going to take over the world. Microsoft was going to take over the world. Uh, one after another, they've, you know, faded away. And Amazon knows that can happen to them. If someone can sneak in underneath them, and I'll tell you a little secret. <laughs> you have to register with them, but go to wish.com, W-I-S-H.com. It's like a Chinese Amazon. Laser pointers, $2. $40 on Amazon, $2 on Wish. Jeans, $2. Watches, $2. Um, takes a while to get it because they send it by boat from China. But three weeks later, there's your $2 watch. Works just as well. Look at the same kind of watch you'd get on Amazon for 30 bucks, $2 from Wish. So um, look out, Amazon. And Bezos is aware of this. So he said to the investors, you're not getting that 
$4 billion. Every penny of it is getting reinvested in the company to make it, uh, to make Amazon virus proof. We're investing, we're ha they're hiring a thousand people a day. They're uh, investing huge money in making the workplace safe. They are <clears throat> launching their own shipping. Um, they saved the country. Um, when people wouldn't, couldn't go out to shop and the stores were closed, Amazon kept delivering. And instead of things coming in two days, they came in three days. But now they're back to two days. Uh, so what is education doing that um, is responding? <clears throat> I said to my friend, who's this top academic administrator, our schools should not be saying, I hope we can get through this. They should be having a plan for how we're going to be 10 times better and 10 times bigger. My courses uh, where I teach have uh, 15 students in the sections and 100 students in the lecture. Why not 1,000 in the lecture if it's online? And of course, online is not as good. But for lectures, maybe it's better. And then have a seminar online or in person. Uh, why might the lecture be better? Because you can pause, back up, listen to it again, listen on the subway, uh, review it. Um, I went to school with some of the most brilliant people of the 20th century. Talk about that another time. But their lectures are gone. I mean, the lectures I sat through, I have vague, very vague recollections of what went on. What if they were recorded? I could go back and listen to them again. Well, that's beginning to happen. A hundred plus of my lectures are on, not that I'm that important, but a hundred plus of my lectures are on YouTube. They'll disappear at some point, but they're there now. They've been listened to or watched a quarter million times. And one of my lectures on early Christian and Gothic architecture. I'm very proud of that lecture. It's been watched 30,000 times. That's 10 times as many students as I've had in my entire 50-year teaching career live. But now I've had 10 times that online. 100 times that if you count all my 100 lectures. So what are schools doing about that? What's my school doing about that? Amazon's going to come out of this 10 times bigger and 10 times stronger, or three times bigger and three times stronger. Uh, my school's going to come out of this hoping that they can recover 20% uh, down in enrollment and hoping they don't go under. Well, get, let's get our act together. And... Uh, I have brilliant colleagues who can do incredible things on a computer. One of my colleagues, when this whole thing started, went into the gallery in our school, swept her phone around, scanning it, built the gallery virtually, had her students turn in their models and their drawings uh, online virtually, hung them up in the gallery. You can walk around the gallery and look at them all virtually. You can zoom in. You can walk right up and read them, uh, the, the writing on the drawings. I mean, if our students know how to do this, do you think they might be in demand? 
in this new world? Is anybody awake? Well, anyway, that's what I was going to talk about the books I've been listening to, and we just did the first one. Post-Corona from Crisis to Opportunity by Scott Galloway. Well, if you really get into Scott Galloway, uh, it, this is sort of an update of his previous book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, what they're all about. And it is scary. doesn't mean it's all bad, but it's certainly scary. Uh, it's not just, you know, oh, we click here, we click there. And Galloway has just this incredible insight. And if you don't want to buy the audio books, just uh, go to YouTube or go to his podcast. Great material online. Well, just going, I went, I went to my library, my audio library, and I've got the Iliad. I haven't um, downloaded and started to listen to it yet, but my school, I went to University of Pennsylvania. So as an alum, I get emails once in a while. And I don't give many money, so I don't get, they're not that excited about me. The fact that I've wrote, written two important books about the school doesn't count. You've got to give them money. But um, there's a course for alumni on the Iliad. Well, I'm pretty strong on the Odyssey. Um, read that in school. And uh, Joseph Campbell, who I'm a big fan of, does uh, a really great uh, lecture series on the Odyssey. The Iliad is um, just as important. It's kind of gory. Jeez. I mean, talk about a spear going through the helmet into the eye and it's bobbing up and down from the throbbing of the pulse. Yeesh. That's why I, I, I don't read it. <laughs> But I figure it's time. So they're doing a course, which I registered for, and they say, get this edition of the Iliad. Let's see. Um, Stanley Lombardo is the translator. So this particular professor, <clears throat> likes Lombardo, um, uh, really big a few years ago was Fagel's translation. is yet another one now. But a lot of my students who have read the Iliad in uh, high school, Red Fagels. And then I got Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. So, Richard Wagner. And um, what's he all about? Why is he so important? And I'm sort of interested in music as, uh, I mean, I have absolutely no musicality. But I'm interested in the history and ideas of music. And there's something used to be called the teaching company or the learning company. And now it's called, I think, the Great Courses. Big fan. Highly recommend a lot of their stuff. And one of their professors is Robert Greenberg. And he does some courses. <clears throat> uh, I've been doing this for years. I used to get them on cassette tapes. I wear embarrassed to say, a fanny pack in which I'd have uh, a, a Walkman, you know, a Sony Walkman, and five or six cassettes. And I could pop the cassettes in as I was going about my day, or I'd pop them in the car if I was in the car, and listen to these uh, books on tape and great courses. Well, I 
Robert Greenberg is just incredible. If you're just the least bit into music, he does the whole history of music. Then he does specialized, uh, he does the history of opera, history of classical music. Um, and he, like when he's doing the Viennese Symphony, he explains on the level of a course, like, he would teach a course on how to compose a Viennese symphony. Well, I wouldn't know what he was talking about. But then he's able to teach that for the layperson um, to explain how it works, how these things are put together, how they came about historically, how they grew out of and are different from what came before uh, the Viennese symphony of Mozart and Haydn, how Beethoven overthrows that, what he does that's different. Just incredible stuff. I just love that. So I'm a big fan of him. I really listen to his stuff regularly. A lot of material. He does all the key composers in uh, multi-part lecture series, a huge series on, again, classic history of classical music and history of opera. So it's because I've been in that world that I decided to get this book, Wagnerism, but I haven't started to listen to it yet. And while I'm on the Great Courses Company, uh, you might have noticed over the course of my shows, I'm kind of into physics stuff. And again, um, you know, for the light person, uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Uh, I'm flattered to say that I shared the same literary agent with Stephen Hawking. And my the agent told Hawking, both the agent and the publisher, but he wrote A Brief History of Time, that every formula you put in the book, every mathematical formula, will cut its sales in half. So he only put one formula in the whole book, e equals mc squared. And it turned out to be one of the biggest bestsellers of all time. Uh, so that's the kind of physics I'm interested in, something that I, yeah, I took physics in college, um, but I can't do the math, and, uh, but, you know, I understand the principles, and I'm interested in, uh, what is relativity. Actually, I was going to talk about that today. We'll see if I get to it. The, uh, incompatibility of Einstein's relativity and quantum theory, and, why that incompatibility is philosophically important. But, uh, again, I digress, which is my style. Anyway, if you're interested in this stuff, um, Stephen L. Goldman does a bunch of uh, science courses for uh, the great courses, and they are just incredible. Again, um, you can get these in either video or audio. I always get audio. The only video, there's one video one I got, I forget what it was, where you really needed the images. And um, I still haven't listened to it or watched it. But the audio all the time, because if I'm in the car, which not happening now, but uh, if I'm in the car walking around, not happening now, um, I just uh, used to plug the cassette into the walk in my fanny pack, and now just click on my phone. But anyway, I used to have those tiny, they're so cool. 
size of about three sticks of gum. Uh, the uh, Apple iPods, the, the minis or micros or whatever they were, have one that the battery goes and it's, I got the kit to replace the battery, but oh, I don't think I'm going to manage. And uh, then I discovered people sell used ones with new batteries. But anyway, this tiny little thing you can put, you know, thousands of songs, dozens of books, and the thing has a video camera. You can watch a movie on it. It's like three quarters of an inch by an inch and a half, but you can watch a movie. Uh, it had an FM radio. So for a long time, I preferred that to my phone, but the phone is so convenient, I've given up on that. I've got dozens of books on my phone. Anyway, um, Stephen L. Goldman does these science courses, and the one I like the most is, <clears throat> forget the exact terms used, but does science present us the truth? In other words, are scientific statements absolute truth, universal, what, universal, absolute, something or other? Or are they just the best they can do at the moment? And there have been two threads ever since the Greeks um, arguing both ways. And he goes through the history of that argument. Well, he tries to be fair to both sides. But I am so clear that science does not present an absolute truth. Um, it's a, Science is a culture that has been remarkably successful in understanding nature, but no matter how far it goes, there's always further. Oh, you know, there's the atom. Oh, there's the proton, neutron, and electron. electron. Oh, there's the, um, there are quarks. Oh, quarks might be made of strings. Well, what are strings made of? <laughs> and, uh, is it strings or loops? Is it string theory or loop quantum gravity? I was going to get to that today. We'll see if I do. I doubt it. We only got a few more minutes. But um, so Goldman is fantastic on presenting uh, the issues there. He has another one. It's the history of modern science from the 19th century to today. Uh, and then he's got and he's got a lot more. So highly recommended. Um, now, speaking of theoretical physics here, like anybody's gonna, not going to glaze over, uh, but to me it's culture. So I'm just almost finished with quantum space, loop quantum gravity and the search for the structure of space-time in the universe by Jim Bagot. Now, the two key figures in loop quantum gravity are Lee Smolin and Carlo Rovelli. And um, Bogati, Bogat is a friend of the both of them and himself a loop quantum gravity physicist. And he presents the field. Now, 
I highly recommend this book. This particular book uh, is a really good summary of the history of physics of the 20th century. So 2005 is Einstein's special relativity. 2015 is his general relativity. And 1900, Max Planck posits that energy is emitted in quanta discrete units rather than continuously, which begins quantum theory. And the two then um, unfold to make 20th and now 21st century physics. And it's a beautiful book. It's somewhat dated, but, you know, these classics are just great to read. Uh, 30 years that shock, 30 years that shocked physics. And I'm pretty sure it's by uh, Gamow. And um, so this book is, first of all, an, an excellent, for the lay person like me, uh, summary of 20th century physics overview, uh, no math. And, but it then unfolds the two competing theory. Well, the problem is, how do, how do we understand gravity? Gravity is explained by Einstein's general relativity, but it doesn't fit into quantum theory. So there's been a struggle to find a quantum theory of gravity. Quantum theory did fine at understanding electromagnetism, uh, does fantastically understanding particles, but it gets nowhere with gravity. So if you had a quantum theory of gravity, you would have, and it has nothing to do with God, you would have the theory of everything. And the theory of everything simply means unification of uh, relativity and quantum theory. And it's what Einstein worked on for the, final, the last 30 years of his life and got nowhere with. And they're still working on it. But string theory was the, is the dominant attempt. And <clears throat> you'll notice if you watch Big Bang Theory, which uh, I love, <laughs> I mentioned that earlier, uh, Sheldon Cooper, uh, our genius on the show, um, I love how they, you know, they can't go too much into him being a genius because it's a sitcom, it's not a science show. But there's one episode where they give a hint where he's working with Raj, the Indian uh, astrophysicist. They agreed to come to his lab, they had nothing else. I think it was Valentine's. They didn't want to do anything else. And Raj says, okay, uh, here's a computer screen. Look at all these numbers. See if you can find an anomaly, something that doesn't fit. And Sheldon looks and says, well, here's one. And Raj says, what do you mean? It takes months to find them. Oh, my God, you found one. How'd you do that? And Sheldon says, well, you know, like in prime numbers, Aren't all the, for you, aren't all the prime numbers red and the double prime smell like gasoline? <laughs> he has synesthesia and they just pop out for him, which is how, you know, people can do things like, okay, multiply 1,335,432 times 
252,531, and they give you the answer instantly. How do they do that? Well, they do that by seeing them as shapes that merge. In other words, they mix up the senses. Anyway, um, how's, how did I digress from here? Uh, oh, eventually Sheldon gives up on string theory. It doesn't work. It's been a fiasco. And so, um, hmm, maybe loop quantum gravity, which the woman physicist on Big Bang Theory, Leslie, Leslie Winkle, is um, into uh, loop quantum gravity. So they're rivals, because his theories are rivals. Well, this book, uh, Quantum Space by Baga, is um, presents both, but is arguing for loop quantum gravity. Now, here's the dis difference, and I'll uh, get toward wrapping up here. But, um, and here's why, to me, it's culturally interesting. String theory assumes that there's a space and a time in which, over which, strings wiggle around. Loop quantum gravity, loop quantum assumes that there is no space or time. The loops generate space and time. And for string theory, space and time is absolute. There's a Newtonian grid out there of space through which you can move. Well, Einstein's general relativity did, did away with that. Gravity is not a force. Gravity is a geometric distortion to space that matter creates. There is no reference point against which we can orient ourselves. That's the whole 20th century culture. That's what modern art is. That's what modernism is. That's what the whole 20th century has been. And the string theorists are unable to accept that. That's my argument. What do I know? But anyway, so what I like about loop quantum gravity is that there is no space or time. Space or time is what happens as things move around. Uh, how can that be? How can we even orient ourselves if there's no space or time to orient ourselves? How would events happen if there were no time for within which to happen? Yeah, it's difficult. It's called modernism. And it's the inability of the string theorists to accept that that uh, creates a problem. Well, why don't I wrap up now? Uh, thanks for listening. This is John Lobel. You've been listening to Visionaries. You find us every Monday at 10 a.m. at prn.fm on the Progressive Radio Network. And you'll find all of our back shows, including this one shortly, at visionaries.podbean.com. See you next week. Bye.